For the next couple uh, weeks here at church, we're going to be looking at some of our core values, the reasons we exist and what it is we're trying to do, and, uh, and the things that I think even in our modern age, the church uniquely brings to society and why the church continues to be an important part of our world and the lives of, of, of those who follow Christ. And uh, today, we want to look at a passage that might be familiar to some of you. It's from the very formation of the church, really the, the beginning of the New Testament church. Uh, as you might recall, after Jesus left his disciples behind and ascended into heaven, a few days later, a few weeks later, the Holy Spirit came down and Peter, the same apostle who had denied Jesus, stands up and preaches the message of Jesus and, and a, a large multitude are converted as a result. And, that's, and we're going to kind of pick this up right at the conclusion of Peter's message in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. It's printed in your program if you'd like to uh, follow along. Peter concludes his message and says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both the Lord and the Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number in one day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word for God's children this morning. One of the things that strikes me, if you walk around any old western city, a city particularly in America or in Europe, one of the things you notice among all the new buildings are a number of old buildings. And most of those old buildings, you'll notice, are churches. Or there's a lot of, lot of old churches in any American city, in any European city, in any western city. Uh, and, but the thing is, most of those churches are basically empty. In fact, I saw an article on American cities and how they're struggling to figure out what to do with all their empty church buildings. Many of them have been repurposed for other purposes. They're either museums or schools or they're, they even in Jersey City, they make everything into a condo. So there's some, some churches that are condos right around here. You can see them as you walk around. And some just get torn down and then they just make up apartment buildings. And yet, the irony is, is that's happening to these old historic buildings, and yet 
here we are. You know, here the church continues to be. And it's not just us. If it was just us, that wouldn't really register on the uh, scale. But, you know, in the last 20 years, the, the group we're a part of, a Redeemer City to City, has helped plant 87 churches just in greater New York, in Manhattan, the five boroughs and, and the surrounding areas, and, and 495 churches in global cities all around the world. And so, so even as these old buildings sort of rot and decay and get repurposed, the church, meaning the people of God, kind of is continually renewing itself and reinventing itself and rediscovering itself in different places and in different circumstances. I remember a couple summers ago, I had to visit someone on the Lower East Side, and it was a nice day. It was in the middle of the summer on a Sunday afternoon, so I decided I would just walk back across town and sort of take a meandering route. And one of the things that was amazing, I'm walking back around five o'clock on Sunday afternoon, is it seemed like on every block, there was one of those little portable signs, kind of like the one that we have or something similar, saying there was a church meeting in a hotel or a church meeting in some little school or a church meeting in some theater. And, and you know, and, and there'd be some enthusiastic, happy young people out there trying to wave people in. And I'm like, <laughs> Like, we're everywhere, you know, we're starting to pervade this place and people don't even know it. Even as the old buildings were decaying all around you, there's, there's churches that, you know, the church is popping up in all these unlikely places. And, and uh, you know, that, that, set, taught, that showed me and reminded me of the durability of the faith, the durability of the people of God and how no matter how much society changes, no matter how much technology changes, no matter how much cities change, the role of the church, the purpose of the church, the mission of the church abides and continues to work in our midst. And if you have eyes to see, you will see it. And one of the reasons for this, I'm going to talk about the different reasons for this over the next couple of weeks, but one of the main reasons for this is because we are made for fellowship. We're made for real relationships with other people, and, and we need to have those things. And one of the great crying needs in the, in, in the world today, and especially as our world becomes more urbanized and more, uh, more high-tech and, and the traditional ways go away, one of the crying needs across the board is for a, a way to find true fellowship. Sebastian Junger in his book Tribe writes this on the irony of urban life. See if you can relate to this. A person living in a modern city can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or even an entire life mostly encountering nobody but complete strangers. We can be completely surrounded by others and yet feel deeply and dangerously alone. Can any of you relate to that? If any of you felt that sitting on a subway platform or, or walking down the streets, you're surrounded by others and yet you're alone, alone in a crowded room. Uh, you know, we talk about the needs of the city and, and like the, the people who need food, for example, and, and that's, that's certainly a need. If you're hungry, you, you need to be fed. But that's an easy need to meet. I think a more complicated need, a more nuanced need, but a need that's just as essential as food is the need for fellowship, the need for relationships, the need to be able to, to have a group of people who know you, who will miss you, who recognize you, and who look forward to uh, seeing you. Uh, you know, uh, we, 
we tend to write off things like that as being incidental, but recent studies have shown that, that actually loneliness as a way of being is just as dangerous to your health as smoking or obesity. You know, there's all this publicity in this world about how dangerous it is to, to, be, to, to reach an unhealthy weight or how, how dangerous it is to, to smoke constantly, and everybody knows that, whether they do anything about it or not. But studies show now that, that being alone and feeling lonely is, is just as, as impactful for shortening your expected lifespan, because we are made for fellowship. It's essential to life, and that's one of the things that the church offers. And I think one of the things the church offers the real thing, and other things are where people find fellowship are kind of counterfeits in contrast to that. And so I like Acts chapter 2 because what it shows us is sort of a snapshot of what the church's fellowship will be like at its best, what the church's fellowship could feel like when the church is at its best. Uh, look at verse 44. It says, describes it this way, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God. They were enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So that's a little picture of what fellowship looks like. On the one hand, they were together. They were not alone. You know, when you're together, when you're with somebody, it's that, that good feeling like I didn't, I'm not in this alone. I'm not in this city alone. I'm not alone this weekend, but I'm with some friends. I'm with a friend. So they were together. And then out of their togetherness flowed the spontaneous generosity, not something that was forced or dictated by a rule, but something that just came naturally. Some people had plenty. Some people were in want. So the people who had plenty said, here, have some of my food. Here, come stay with me. Here, come, come uh, let, let, me, let me pay for your room, or whatever the case would be. There was just this sense that, that we're, we're together in this, so we're going to support each other, and I can't, I can't enjoy what I have and ignore the needs of the people who are around me. And they had meals together. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You know, when you're trying to get to know somebody, you don't say, well, let's sit in a meeting room and talk and, and, and have a discussion about the future of this relationship. What do you usually say? Well, let's, you want to go out to dinner? Want to meet for lunch or maybe coffee? Because, you know, when you're eating together, there's sort of this, this bond that happens, this relationship that kind of naturally happens. And uh, by the way, stay for lunch because it's a great opportunity for everyone to <laughs> eat together with glad and sincere hearts. You know, there's reason... Uh, uh, you know, a reason that sometimes people gain weight when they get involved in the church is because all of a sudden there's <laughs> all these opportunities to eat together. And they were praying together. You know, there's, there are few things in life that are more intimate than really praying with other people, which is why we don't do it, because it it's just uh, makes, makes us feel a little awkward. But, but they were praying together. It says, and they were learning together. I mean, these guys, this church had an advantage. I mean, if, you're, if the preachers in your church are Peter, James, and John, you'd think those would be some pretty captivating messages. I mean, the guys just stood up and said, oh, remember when Jesus did this? Let's tell them about that. <laughs> and remember when Jesus said that? I mean, that, so I, I think, you know, when, when you got uh, the apostles teaching you, that, that helps. 
but uh, but they were all in this together. It was an intellectual movement. They were understanding God's word and the work of God in a new way. But then it wasn't just practical and intellectual. It was also supernatural. Everyone, was, verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So it wasn't just, this wasn't just an organization or an experience, but God was doing something in their midst. And when the church is really on the move, it's not because people are getting organized or because a plan is coming together so much as God is at work and God is is calling people out and God is calling people to himself and God is bringing people into relationship and mobilizing his body for his pur purpose. So the first church, you know, one of the great uh, challenges of history for, for historians is to explain the rise of the church. How did this, this movement that started in Jerusalem by a couple of outcasts, you know, fishermen from a hick town somewhere, all of a sudden cover cover the whole Roman Empire in one generation, spread throughout the Roman Empire in one generation, and then essentially conquer the Roman Empire in four centuries. How did that happen? And, you know, there, there's a lot of things that went into that, but the biggest one is the Holy Spirit was on the move. And when the Holy, when the Holy Spirit's on the move, then the church grows. Then, then the people of God are coming together and are empowered and, and, and powerful things are happening. And, and something happens that can't be explained just by, just by their effort. And that, that's what it says. It says here that the, the, the result of all this is the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And this is an important thing about this group. So... So the, the, uh, the, the early Christians got together and they were forming this group and they were studying and they were reading and they, they, were, they were getting to know one another. But in the midst of that, also, other people were being added to their group. Other people were, were joining their group because their group was inclusive and open. They, they didn't get their cohesiveness by shutting other people out and by excluding others. They got cohesiveness from Jesus and it enabled them to include others. It made them a more inclusive group. And, and I think that's profound to me because so often you look at the inclusive group or the, the, the tight groups that form in our world and most of the time they form by excluding other people. Either it's an elite institution, an elite educational institution or something like that and, and a lot of the reason for their existence is the fact that m most people can't get into that, that organization or that club or that educational institution, something like the Navy SEALs or something like that, that only a very few people can join. And, or like an athletic club or an athletic team where, where your whole, whole identity is our team against other teams. But that, that's just kind of natural. Or, or sometimes it's just the mean girls, you know, we're, we're the mean girls and everyone else has to stay away. But, but the, the fastest way to unify people and to, to get, get a group to coalesce is to give them an enemy or an opponent. But the early church, in contrast to that, they coalesced around Christ and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They didn't shut people out. In fact, it was, this was a movement that caught fire and grew, like I said, until it was covering the whole nation. And so... So this, this was the body that formed. So, so just, just to 
so, so Peter is here, and this is the very first church, you know, the, the, the very first gathering of, of the New Testament church. Uh, um, and uh, and the, this, 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 this group is catalyzed, but let, let's talk again about what happened here. The, the very first sermon Peter preached, he talks about Jesus and talks about how Jesus had come. He was the fulfillment of the prophets, the fulfillment of the scriptures and, and all these kinds of things. And 3,000 people are converted. But what was the heart of his message? What was his punchline? What was his call? It was simply this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter, what should we do? So, who was Peter reaching out to here? He was, re he was sharing Jesus, he was proclaiming Jesus to the very people who just weeks prior had been demanding that Jesus be crucified. He was offering the grace of Jesus to people who just a few weeks before had demanded that Jesus be executed. He was... He was offering the love of Jesus and the restoration of Jesus to the people who had, who had been co-conspirators in the death of Jesus. And he's saying, you guys killed God's Messiah. You got, the Lord came to you and you guys executed him. But the flip side of this was you, you, you would expect that these people who had organized themselves against the Messiah you would expect that these people would organize themselves against the Lord when they realized it or when, whenever the Lord tried, decided to exert himself, he would just wipe them all out, right? And that's, that's what, what, what you would expect someone to do when, to, in response to someone who's trying to kill you. But that's not what happens. Instead, God worked through their plot, worked through their animosity, worked through their vindictiveness towards Jesus to actually establish him as the Messiah, to establish him as the Savior, to establish, to help him accomplish the work that God had called, called them to. God sent the Messiah, the Messiah that they were looking for. Remember the first century Jews, the whole thing they were looking for, their hope was all bound up in this Messiah. And every time someone attracted a crowd, they would go and ask, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Because they were desperate for a Messiah who was going to rescue them. And then Peter says, well, the Messiah did come. His name was Jesus. And rather than getting behind him, you guys executed him. But God raised him from the dead. And God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And see, that message cut them to the heart. But it wasn't a cut that killed them. It was the cut that made them new. It was a, on the one hand, it was, it was a deep wound that said, you killed the Messiah. But on the other hand, it was a healing wound that said, God raised him from the dead. God made this Messiah both Lord and Christ. You killed the author of life, Peter says in his next sermon, but God brought him back to life. God restored, and his mission was accomplished. And in fact, his message was accomplished through your failure, through your failure to recognize him, through your sin, and through all of your issues. And so on the one hand, they saw a revelation of their deep, 
profound corruption as the murderers of God's anointed. But then on the other hand, they saw a revelation of God's amazing power to reverse their, their corruption in the fact and in the way that he brought Christ back from the dead. And so we see in that the heart of the gospel message. What was it that made this fellowship? What was it that made this fellowship so vital? It was a fellowship of people who had been cut to the heart. Because on the one hand, the, the cross of Christ forced them to recognize their sin, their failure, and how, how much they, they weren't open to God himself. But on the other hand, the cross of Christ showed them God's great grace for them and God's mercy for them, and God's ability to work even through their sin and failure to accomplish a greater purpose, the redemption of the world. On the one hand, the cross of Christ showed them that they were more flawed and more guilty and more broken and more sinful than they had ever been willing to admit. But on the other hand, the work of Christ showed them that Jesus is more powerful and more more gracious and his mission is more glorious than ever, anything they ever dared dream. And the result of that was a new community, a new community of people who had been cut to the heart, a new community of people who didn't just decide, well, let's get together and try to do some good things for the community, or let's just get together because we like hanging out together, but a new community of people who all got together because they said, we've all been cut to the heart. And then when you've been cut to the heart, if the gospel has cut you to the heart, then all of a sudden the things that are only skin deep don't matter so much anymore. The, the question of your style, the question of your status, the question of your education, the question of your skin color, your ethnic group, your language, your nation, your family, all those things become secondary because the ultimate thing is that your heart has been touched and your heart has been cut, but that cut has healed you and made you whole. Every heart that's been touched by the same power, by the same knife, can be redeemed by the same grace. And that's what created the new fellowship, was the fellowship of those who have been cut to the heart. To make it real, Peter gives all the people, these people who were now, according to Peter, implicated in the murder of the very Son of God, he gives them this offer. Look at verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So he's saying to these people, these people who he just implicated in killing the very Son of God, he says, if you'll repent, if you'll be baptized, you will be restored. And God's presence will be restored to you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that was the power and the promise that the gospel offered them then. And that's the power and the promise that the gospel offers us all today. You know, you walk around cities and you see all these old churches, all these crumbling old churches, these old edifices, and now they're museums or schools or condos or whatever. But what do all those churches have on them? They all have a cross. And what does that cross remind us of? What does the cross tell us? 
cross tells us that we were so broken and so flawed and so guilty that we couldn't redeem ourselves. Christianity is not just a set of rules to live by. It's a message that says we can't follow the rules that matter most. But then we look again at the cross, and the cross shows us that we're so loved and God is so committed to us and so powerful that he restored us and redeemed us anyways. He sent a Redeemer our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that we can have today because a set of rules can't redeem us. A new organization can't restore us. But through the cross, we can experience that restoration. And through that cross, we can experience a new basis for unity, a new basis for fellowship, even with people who we might not think we have that much in common with because what we have in common is that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, that we couldn't redeem ourselves, but we've known a Redeemer. Because the cross, you know what the cross tells us? It says it doesn't really matter how beautiful you are, or how smart you are, or how hardworking you are, or how charitable you are, or how religious you are, or how well-educated you are, or how financially successful or unsuccessful you might be. What matters is that you've received the gift of His grace through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that creates the fellowship that everybody's heart is ultimately longing for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make this real to us, that as we walk around the city, as we see the cross, we'd be reminded of our absolute moral and spiritual bankruptcy, then simultaneously be reminded of a grace that is greater than all of our sin. Help us to see that. Help us to believe that. Help us to be touched by that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.